Look, if someone gets infected, you've got between 10 and 20 seconds to kill them. It might be your brother or your sister or your oldest friend. It makes no difference. And just so you know where you stand, if it happens to you, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Brutal. But could it change? <laughs> Question mark. Could love change her? <laughs> <laughs> could love intervene between these two crazy kids in one wacky situation? Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Tatum, welcome back to another recording only a few days after the last time we recorded. Yeah, we're going to start slowing down here soon. This, this, has, will, been a, this has been a rapid pace for a it's long really time. It's really been a, it's been a wild ride these last couple weeks. For the, for the listener who has no idea what's happening in like our normal lives, uh, we, we tend to, we like to have a backlog uh, just in case, you know, things happen. And when I was working on the bear earlier this year, we blew through our backlog. And oh, yeah. so we're trying to... Uh, rebuild it but within the next week or so i think we should be good to like stop recording multiple episodes so close together yeah, we can actually start watching other things in between episodes my entire letterbox for the last like two and a half months has just been like things for this podcast yeah. <laughs> mine is like one movie for the podcast one movie for me one yep. movie for the podcast yep because the movies for the podcast are not for us. Oh, right. <laughs> it's just for you, the listener. It's for the people. Yes. Give yeah. the people what they want. Yes. Um, speaking of movies for me, I uh, hate them. <laughs> We're in a mood today. I don't know what this mood is, but I like we it. We are. A little, uh, little slap happy today. I guess. I, um, I feel like it's just the right mood to start talking about zombies. True. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, have you seen anything recently? <laughs> I have not too much, but I um, I actually rewatched a family favorite from when I was growing up called Guess Who. Um, it is a remake of the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier from what was it, the eighties or seventies? I don't 60s, know, sixties, sixties. Whatever it was. Um, but it's a remake of that, except the roles are reversed. So the concept is it's a an African-American woman who brings her, her white fiancé home to meet her family. And craziness ensues. Um, it's a movie that I genuinely really love. I wasn't sure if it would hold up because I probably haven't seen it in like 10 years. Um, but I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, it's, you know, it's got a few aged jokes in terms of you know some some gay jokes that are in poor taste and a few things like that um but overall I think it's still a very pleasant enjoyable funny comedy um I was surprised to see that there is a lot of like extreme hate for this movie on the internet and on letterboxd and my opinion is just that a lot of people that are writing these things are white people who like don't really understand how to engage with the subject matter I don't know um, but it's a very good movie and I had a good time with it. So it made me laugh, made me miss Bernie Mac. He's a legend. Um, and I will forever be sad that he 
is no longer alive and, you know, making us laugh with his humor. Um, but yeah, so I watched Guess Who and then I also, um, my life is super stressful as of late. So I've, you know, as seen with Guess Who, which is something that's a lot lighter, um, and I haven't really been wanting to put in much energy to figure out like, okay, what, what mood am I in? What am I going to watch? And so I've actually been watching a lot of National Geographic. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Geneva, I actually don't know if you know this about me, but I'm obsessed with whales. They're like my favorite animal. Uh, what? I, yeah, I have like an, ex- <laughs> I was not aware of this. <laughs> yes. I have an extreme obsession with whales. And so the National Geographic, uh, you know, kind of network or whatever you call it. I don't know the name of this actual series or program, whatever you would call it, but it's like a focus on whales. So it's like each episode, they dedicate an hour to talking about the culture of a particular type of whale. So the first one is orcas. The second one is humpbacks. And then the third one is belugas and narwhals, which narwhals are freaking gnarly. Um, And yeah, next they're going to do like blue whales and sperm whales and all the whales. So <laughs> so it's like shark week, but better. But better. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, whales are super super impressive and really majestic animals. Um and yeah, so it's just been like a fun thing to put on at night before I go to bed to just sit there That's and awesome. be like, "Oh, in awe of nature. This is amazing." So yeah, that's what I've been watching. I've been watching whales and guess who? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it's been a good Have time. Have you ever seen, I feel like anyone says whales to me and my first association is always going to be Star Trek Four, a.k.a. Star Trek Four: Save the Whales. Yep. <laughs> it's <laughs> on my, my list. It. <laughs> it is on my list, but I have yet to watch it. But every single person who hears that I'm obsessed with whales is like Tatum. You have to watch this movie. Watch Star Trek. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> Spock goes swimming with the whales. It's very sweet. Are they real whales or are they CGI whales? They have some real whales. <gasps> that, I mean, this is the 80s. This is like the early to mid 80s. So, okay. yeah, they've got some real whales in there. <clears throat> he uh, he mind melds with one of them. Cool. <gasps> That's my kind of movie. I I have a thing for like mind melding with animals. Like if I could do that with a whale, that'd be sick. Also, be I will sick. find a dragon and I will have a dragon <laughs> someday. <laughs> and we will combine our brains and become one and it'll be great. This is starting to make a lot of sense to me because I'm feeling like a whale is the 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 closest thing that you could to a dragon find in terms of scale to a dragon. <laughs> so. Yes. And they, they like fly, but underwater. And yeah, they're all amazing. Right, all right. This this all makes sense. I don't know why I was surprised. Yeah. So anyway, fun facts about Tatum. She loves whales and she loves dragons and dragons are real. Don't anyone tell me that they're not. <laughs> anyway. All right. <clears throat> um, well, in terms of myself, uh, only one thing to report. I watched The Gold Diggers of 1935. So kind of continuing through Busby Berkeley's musicals of the 30s. It is really fascinating to compare with the musicals of the 1933 that I'd seen. So I mentioned, I think, a few months ago on the podcast that I'd watched um, Footlight Parade and then also Gold Diggers of 33 and then 42nd Street. Those are all movies that are very much pre-code. Like the code was coming in, but it was still pre-code. 1935 is very much postcode and there is a very noticeable difference in terms of what they're able to get away with um, now versus later. But it's actually also really fascinating because 35 also feels like a more 
a I don't want to say a step forward because I don't want to make sort of qualitative value judgments, but it's kind of closer to what we think of as a more traditional movie musical in terms of having songs that are really directly integrated into the action, unlike those earlier musicals where it's very much story and then we stop and have a huge musical number, but it's within the context of the story. Like they're all show people putting on a musical number. Um, whereas this is more, you know, the guy and the girl go for a little walk in between rehearsals and then they just start singing to each other, that sort of thing. So anyway, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, all that aside, it was, it was a pretty fun time. Um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't the greatest musical of this era that I've ever seen, but it was a fun time. It would have to take a lot to be the greatest musical of that era that you've seen. (laughs) It would have to be your new favorite movie of all time. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of things to, yeah, there are a lot of contenders out there. I mean, Fred Astaire alone, you know, hard to top. Um, Okay, so why don't we dive straight into 28 Days Later? All right, today in the show, we are discussing 28 Days Later, the 2002 action horror zombie movie directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland, and starring Killian Murphy, Naomi Harris, Brendan Gleeson, and Christopher Eccleston. The movie centers on Jim, a young bike courier who wakes up from a coma to discover that all of Britain has been overtaken by a virus that turns people into mindless, feral rage zombies. He teams up with Selena, a pragmatic chemist, Frank, a friendly cabbie, and Frank's teenage daughter, Hannah, to journey north in the hope of finding rescue. But as we discover in the third act of the film, perhaps the greatest danger of all isn't the zombies. Perhaps it's men? Men! Question mark, question mark. All right. Um, I had a great time doing research for this movie. Well, it wasn't a whole lot of research because a lot of this I knew already because I'm a huge nerd. You have paragraphs here. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is just a really fascinating to me um, intersection of a lot of different movements, a lot of people's careers kind of on the ascendancy, um, you know, huge, massive cultural shifts taking place in the U.S. and in Britain. So in the late 1990s, the, quote, Cool Britannia movement brought a new generation of British British artists, musicians, and filmmakers to the forefront of culture. One of these filmmakers was Danny Boyle, whose first two films, Shallow Grave and Trainspotting, became unexpected hits. Both of these films were cool, energetic, and experimental, while also being deeply cynical looks at British life in the late 20th century. Um, Tatum, have you ever seen... Uh, either Shallow Grave or Train Spotting. I may have seen Train Spotting, but I have not seen Shallow Grave. I've seen a lot more of Boyle's more recent films. His later work. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a handful of his movies, but not as much his earlier stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to contrast. I've not actually seen Train Spotting because I watched a couple sequences from it and was like I don't know if I can handle this (laughs) but I have seen Shallow Grave and that's a really really cool little um kind of dark thriller that is very well made um it's got Ewan McGregor it's got Christopher Eccleston um yeah I would recommend that one that I, I think you would like it um, 28 Days Later began as a screenplay by writer Alex Garland, who was inspired by his experience playing the video game uh, Resident Evil, which featured zombies. 
and by the British post-apocalyptic story Day of the Triffids. Garland's idea was to make the zombies fast. Unlike traditional zombies, who were reanimated corpses barely capable of movement, these would be living people infected with a virus that simulated the effects of extreme, mindless rage. Garland brought the script to Boyle, who had previously directed an unsuccessful adaptation of Garland's novel The Beach. They later, after this movie, went on to make um, collaborate a third time on Sunshine, which is a movie I love, and hopefully we will do one day on the podcast. The cast of the movie included two well-known character actors, Christopher Eccleston and Brendan Gleeson, but Boyle chose two relative unknowns for the leads. Naomi Harris was a child actor who'd done a little British TV. Killian Murphy was a musician-turned-actor who'd done a few independent films, but both of them were very much stars on the rise. One of the most distinctive things about 28 Days Later is the grainy videotape quality of its cinematography. The director of photography was Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who had worked with Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg as part of the Dogma 95 movement, which championed low-budget, handheld realism. Mantle is considered a pioneer of digital cinematography and eventually won an Oscar for his work on Danny Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire. Filming for 28 Days Later began in July of 2001 with the iconic opening sequence in which Killian Murphy's character Jim wanders around a deserted London. To achieve this, the crew had to block off certain streets during the very early hours of the morning, dress the set, and capture the shot very quickly before allowing the car traffic to resume. Uh, obviously, this could not have been done a few months later, because the film was still shooting in September when the 9-11 terrorist attack shocked the world. The scene where Jim sees a wall of notes from people trying to find their relatives was shot before 9-11, but it gained new poignancy afterwards, when images like that were being shown on the news every day. And I think this was a big f uh, factor in why, why this movie became such an unexpected hit, is that it really kind of captured something about, you know, what people were seeing on the news and the sort of disorientation and shock and um, fear that was being felt in culture at the time. And this movie was sort of poised in the center where it was kind of the last movie that could ever have been made of this kind, you know, using these kinds of images. Um, finding the ending of the movie proved very difficult. When the, the production nearly ran out of money, and they shot and tested a fairly bleak ending in which Jim dies of the gunshot wound and Selena and Hannah set out together into kind of just, yeah, an uncertain future. However, this played horribly with audiences when they tested it. The studio finally agreed to fund a more positive ending in which Jim lives and he, Selena, and Hannah have the hope of being rescued. Uh, you can actually see the original ending. It's on YouTube and on uh, DVDs for this film if you are able to get your hand on hands on the DVD. So kind of interesting to think about what this film could have, the turn that this film could have taken. All right, so 28 Days Later. So my personal um, experience with this movie, I first saw it a couple years ago um, when I was doing a deep dive on Killian Murphy's career and seeing some of his earlier work. Um, and like I've said before on the podcast, I'm not a big horror person, but I'm trying to become more educated about horror and kind of explore what are the things that I like and don't like about it. And I really like this movie. I really like the post-apocalyptic genre in general. And um, this idea of the world, all these people being suddenly disappeared from the world, and you having to start out on your own and sort of 
start from scratch, basically, and build a new life for yourself while navigating dangers. I just find that really interesting. I like the emotional core of this movie, the characters, as they have this sort of back and forth debate about, you know, is is it just survival enough or do you need to have something worth living for? And if so, what is that thing? And how do you keep hope when hope seems to be lost? Um, but also this movie is... It, I really like how this movie balances the the optimism and the pessimism about human nature because I think that echoes something in myself. Um, I, I like the fact that it ends positively, but I also like the fact that it it there is a real dark side to this movie, especially when it comes to the third act and what that says about humanity. So, yeah, I love this movie a lot. Excited to talk about it. <laughs> Tatum, what's your do you have a history with this movie, and what were your thoughts on this rewatch? So I, um, I also saw this movie for the first time a few years ago. Um, I, (laughs) the first time I saw this movie, I did not like it very much. Um, and the environment in which I watched it the first time was I was living in Spain. It was the hottest month of the year. There was no air conditioning. We couldn't go outside because it was so hot. And so the only thing to do was stay inside close the windows, close the shades and try and lay as still as possible. (laughs) And so that was literally the scenario in which I watched this movie. I took a freezing cold shower and just like laid on a bed in the dark and hoped I wouldn't die of just heat. Um, And so, yeah, I was not particularly um, impressed with this movie the first time I watched it. So going into it this time, I was kind of like, okay, you know, maybe it was just the way in which I watched it last time. Let's see what happens this time around. Um, I still don't like this movie very much. <laughs> um, I it, I think, I think it kind of plays into that scenario that I think we've talked about on this podcast before, where it's like, I think if I had seen this in its time in the year that it came out, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. But for me, while I'm watching this, I'm like, I have seen this scenario a million times. I've seen World War Z. I've seen I Am Legend. I've seen Terminator. I've seen The Last of Us. I've seen, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. This concept of post-apocalypse, you know, someone is in a scenario where they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? What's happening? I don't know. Let's meet people. And then they meet people, then they learn about the threat, then they form friends, and then there's like, oh, there's hope if we get to this place, and we learn, and then they get there, and it's like, oh, guess what? They're either cannibals, or they're murderers, or it's not safe because it burns down, and then they have to move somewhere else. It's just, it's, it's, for me, I, I like the opening a lot. I like the opening sequence with um with the animal rights activists and the chimpanzees and the monkeys and when Killian Murphy's character initially wakes up and goes walking through like the empty um London I love all of that and then after that I'm kind of just I'm not I'm not impressed with with not that I'm not impressed because I don't need movies to impress me but the story just doesn't connect with me because it doesn't feel original because I've seen so many things that have come after this. But this even came after things like the Terminator and Terminator has similar concepts too, where it's like, Oh, we have to find Skynet and they'll, you know, 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm interested to see how we talk about this because I do feel like there is potential for me to be swayed on certain things um, and pushed more in the direction of liking this movie a bit more. But overall, it's just a movie where I'm very, I'm pretty lukewarm on it until it gets to the end. And then the end, I'm like, okay, this is really just like cheesy and predictable and I don't feel like I need to watch this to the end because I already know everything that's going to happen. So yeah, anyway, I, I know that this movie is beloved by many. So I I recognize that like I am in the minority with this, but at the same time, I'm not going to lie and pretend <laughs> that I like this movie more than I do um, because that's not why we do this podcast. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, all I can say is I uh, appreciate your thoughts. You're wrong, but I <laughs> that's okay. Just kidding. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, cur- I'm curious to hear as well before we go any further, because Alex Garland is a, a huge. I'm a huge fan of his. I've been mm-hmm. following his work for years. Um, mm-hmm. What is your? Do you have any sort of like? history with his work independent of the rest of the movie yeah I've seen a lot of his stuff I've seen uh I mean he hasn't always directed I don't I think he's only directed a few things but as far as writing I mean I've seen a lot of his stuff I've seen Ex Machina um I I love Annihilation um I've seen Never Let Me Go I did not watch Men because of personal reasons about just the general topic of the subject matter of that movie. Um, I watched his television show devs. I thought it started out really, really strong. I thought it kind of teetered out or what, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like it petered out. Yeah. It kind of petered out towards the end for me in terms of like interest. Um, I, we've talked about this before very briefly, but, (laughs) um, I've seen sunshine. I don't like sunshine. Um, so I'm very mixed with him. Some of his stuff I really, really like a lot. And then other things kind of missed the mark for me, which makes me think it has more so to do with like taste. Some of his stuff is my taste and some of it isn't as opposed to like, this is good and this is bad. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty familiar with Alex Garland's kind of like filmography. Gotcha. Have you, you've not seen Dread, right? No, I have not. That's a movie I'd kind of love to do on the podcast. I really love Dread. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, okay, yeah, I was just curious. I I know you'd seen Sunshine and wasn't, you, that you weren't crazy about it, but I couldn't remember how many of his other um, things you'd seen. Yeah, I've seen quite a few of his things and I've also seen quite a few of Danny Boyle's movies. So, and Danny Boyle is another thing where like looking at his filmography, there's some things that I really like and then other things that don't work for me at all. So mm, yeah, yeah, I've mostly seen early Danny Boyle. I haven't seen as many of, I haven't seen many post Slumdog Millionaire mm-hmm. um, projects. Um, I've seen Yesterday, which is not very good. Great um, concept, but poor execution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of kind of unfortunate. It is a really great concept. Um, yeah, okay. So why don't we start going through the plot of this movie um so as you mentioned it opens with basically the whole apocalypse is the fault of PETA which (laughs) is kind of funny um so there are these activists who break into a Cambridge laboratory 
and they discover something that is genuinely really horrifying, mm-hmm. which is yeah. this monkey is strapped down and forced to watch all of these videos of just real life horrific events throughout the world. And that's how the movie opens is showing all these real life mobs and fire and police violence and um, people fighting in the streets and, you know, just the, the worst parts of humanity. And it's all just being fed into this poor, innocent monkey's eyes, basically. Um, but the the activists break in. They're trying to, to free the animals that are being tested on. And the scientist is like, please do not do this. These animals are infected. You do not know what you're doing. But they do it. And the monkey gets free and bites one of the activists. And she turns into a zombie. And basically, it's all over from there. I I will say... Uh, like I said before, this opening sequence, particularly with the monkeys and the animal rights activists, it's my favorite part of the whole film. I think it's a great way to just like establish the stakes and build tension and really get you invested right off the bat. Um, so I really like it a lot. Um, and so this is very nitpicky, but it was just something that I was thinking about. I was like, that doctor could have done a better job. He's like, (laughs) they're, they're infected with what? rage like you could <laughs> I know have, I had the same thought like oh that's helpful <laughs> like you could have said oh no they're infected with a virus that will turn you into a like killing machine in 10 seconds and we can't stop it and it'll destroy human like instead of rage <laughs> like okay <laughs> rage is not a disease I'm sorry yeah like if someone tells me like if I walk into a scenario as an animal rights activist and I'm seeing animals being abused And someone tells me, who probably is a little bit crazy already because they're acting this way towards these animals, if they tell me the animals are infected with rage, I'm not going to listen to you. Be like, "Um, okay, they're probably mad at you for locking them up. Like, of course they're infected with rage. So it's the doctor's fault, in my opinion. Yes, yes. It's all the doctor's fault. If only he'd had a better story prepared. Well, I'm not going to go into this. (laughs) <laughs> just made me think of brand game of thrones good story oh my gosh <laughs> who has the best story um all right well i'm, so, I'm glad that you and i both had that same thought because i was like come on man come on <laughs> come on man rage like you gotta work on that <laughs> all right so we get an opening title that says 28 days later and then we meet Jim, and he's lying on a hospital bed. Um, he's got a bunch of IVs in him. He is otherwise completely naked. He's been locked into this hospital room with this key slipped under the door. And um, my personal trauma happens, which is people just waking up in a hospital bed and immediately ripping all the IVs out of their arm, which is just, I hate it when that happens. It's the worst cliche ever. Um <laughs> Although he at least does bandage his arm, so they do acknowledge that that would be extremely painful. Um, but yeah, so Jim is, he's like a, he was a bike courier, he says later. He's just this young guy, you know, early 20s. Um, he looks extremely skeletal. Um, his ha- head is half shaved because he has this giant scar on the half of the the side of his head. Um, and he wakes up and there is no one around him. And he's wandering. He goes through the hospital. Um, He finds some Pepsi to drink, which is like probably the only calories that he's had in weeks. Um, He immediately finds a plastic bag and just starts gathering up more Pepsi, which I'm like, no, my my man is very resourceful. (laughs) Good for him. 
Um, Wonder what type of arrangement they had with Pepsi in order to have that be their drink. (laughs) That's that's Pepsi. And there was some other soda that they they list later in the um, the movie. I can't remember the name and I'd never heard of it before. And he's like, do you have any Tang or something? That's the that's the prop buyer in me. Like, what's the deal as far (laughs) as, you know, which types of Pepsis can we show and how many of them and blah, 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 Mm -hmm. blah, blah. Make sure that his when he drinks the Pepsi, the label is turned toward the audience. Yep. It's never just Pepsi. There's always a story behind how much Pepsi, which, what lighting, how do we see it? How is it being used? In what context are we seeing the Pepsi? <laughs> but um, yeah, this whole sequence. So this is, um, I'm not going to say it's my favorite in the sequence in the movie because I have several favorite sequences in the movie. But this is just, it's an iconic sequence for a reason. It is so, beautifully shot seems a weird phrase to say considering that the cinematography in this movie is kind of actively ugly like intentionally ugly but the way these shots are framed with um just pulling back and showing him in a one of the most crowded cities in the world in some of the most crowded areas of the most crowded city in the world all just completely deserted all of there's um just papers and debris scattered everywhere and he just keeps yelling hello 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 and he's like you know he has no idea what's going on and um there's this wall with all of the the photographs and the letters from people trying to contact their res um their relatives which like i just cannot imagine how disorienting and terrifying it would be to wake up everyone is gone and all the the only sign of human life is everyone trying to reach out to the people they love before something terrible happens to them. Um, but yeah, thoughts on this sequence? Because I, oh man, this is like a sequence that I will just randomly watch on YouTube sometimes. The music is also great. It's this, um, I think it's called Godspeed, uh, Godspeed Good Emperor or something like that. I forget the name, but it's this beautiful song that's just kind of pulsing and poignant and um, it just suits the the mood of the scene so well. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I wanted to say that um, I think that I, I really appreciate when movies have good titles and I feel like the title to this movie is just really clever. It's a really, really great title. Just this concept of we see we see kind of the the present day or the past, however you want to look at it. And then all of a sudden we're jumping to the 28 days later and kind of the rest of the movie is about the aftermath of what we had seen 28 days before. I just think it's a really, really great film title. So I just wanted to say that. Um, As far as this whole sequence, I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's really, um, it's really captivating and it's really interesting. Um, I will say I do think it's maybe a little bit unrealistic how chill he is for how long. Like, I I understand that he's probably confused and maybe in shock a little bit, but he's walking around for at least an hour, if not longer. And the fact that the whole time he's just like, oh, hello, hello. Like, I feel like someone would have a breakdown. Someone would have a breakdown at some point (laughs) within that time period. Um, But that's, again, a nitpick. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's a I think it's an interestingly shot sequence. Um, I really like how um, I like the sequence when he gets to the church 
and the first time we actually see people. Um, and at first we're like, oh, people. Okay. And then, oh, wait, they're all dead. And then wait, oh no, well, they're it's not. So, it is so incredibly horrifying because, I mean, first of all, you have this incredible sequence of him going into the church and slowly going up the stairs. And there's just this gradual reveal that someone has painted on the walls. The end is extremely fucking nigh, <laughs> which is, you know, I feel like is exactly what would happen in that situation. But he opens the church and it's just this entire sanctuary is just strewn with bodies, like just piled high. And it really looks like something you would see in some sort of news broadcast of the after- aftermath of a massacre or a, um, a natural disaster. And there's this little, you know, like you can hear the flies buzzing around. And he just, he looks like he's about to cry. And then he says hello, and all of a sudden two people shoot up. But the like the look on their eyes, like these are the zombies. And it's just this is the first indication that there are zombies <laughs> in this film. But it's just, oh my goodness, the timing of it, the way he says hello, and then boom, all of a sudden it's like these whip pans over to these two like creepy looking figures that suddenly shoot up and start staring at him. It's so good. And then the priest comes out and the priest is a zombie, but Jim doesn't know that, but he knows something's wrong and he's like trying to get away and then he hits him and then he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, which is just such a like, oh man, the Irish Catholic guilt. Um, Yeah, it's such a good sequence, like that slow dawning, like, you know, you've never experienced this before. You don't know how to process what's happening. And so you're apologizing to the zombie, even as the zombie is trying to murder you. Yeah. I, I like, I just like the establishing of the zombies. Cause obviously we see them in that first sequence when that first person is transformed and we see the eyes and, you know, um, but I, I like, I don't know. I just think it does a good job of establishing kind of the, the threat that they pose just through like how quickly they move and how much they can just hear you and hear where you are. And um, yeah, I just think it's a really cool, it's, it's a really well shot sequence that establishes just how, how big this threat actually is. And I like that it takes place in a church. I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. And I think that that also is something that's very realistic. I think in a time of something like this, a lot of people probably would go to some sort of house of faith, whatever type of house of faith it is, and kind of just sit there and wait and and hope that, you know, some sort of God will reveal themselves. And then before you know it, they're all dead. And then they're all zombies. Priest is trying to murder you. Yeah. <laughs> Which so. I'm very curious if the priest had like because he seemed to have been barricaded into the office at the end and then he breaks out just as Jim is coming in. And, you know, you just picture like the last moments of the priest knowing he's going to turn into a zombie and trying to barricade himself into the office and not quite doing a good enough job. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I find the the theme, too. And this is um, this is something that has always fascinated me about Sunshine as well, but the push and pull between Alex Garland as a, an atheist and Danny Boyle as kind of an agnostic, but someone who's had sort of flirted with the idea of religion in the past is really fascinating to me how those sorts of things come out in their collaborations. Um, so, yeah, so Jim is now being chased by the zombies and the zombies are fast and they're just like people you know, who are really fast and strong and are running. But he's rescued by these two survivors named Mark and Selena. And 
they tell him, you know, they basically basically break it to him that the country has collapsed. There's no government. There's no news. There's no word on whether this is every happening everywhere or just in Britain. Um, but everyone is dead. Our families are dead. Your family is going to be dead. And Jim, you know, struggles to accept this. And he's like, well, I want to go and find my parents. Like, I need to know if they're dead or not, which is an understandable, although, you know, not very smart, but a very human <laughs> impulse. Um, thoughts on Mark and Selena and our first introduction to them? Um, well, I'm trying to picture in my brain what that introduction actually is. So they're throwing Molotov cocktails. They blow up this gas station. It's this really impressive explosion. And then they take him into like a convenience store or something. And Mark like shoots a joke at him. And Jim is just like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Mark is like, he's humorless. And I'm like, Mark, calm down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, I-, I liked Mark. I did forget that he dies in this movie. So that I mean. Or at least that he died that quickly and in the way that he did. Um, But I think it definitely establishes them from the beginning of being, you know, likable people that know how to survive and will do what it takes. But also I like this combination of Selena being a little bit more of like, you know, a little bit more cautious and closed off. And then Mark seemingly being more open and welcoming. Um, I thought that I, I... it makes sense to me that the two of them are a team and why they've kind of been together. I mean, I guess we don't know how long they've been together, but um, yeah, I don't know. I like, I like their dynamic. Yeah. You could easily imagine them having a whole movie to themselves prior to them meeting Jim and the events of this movie. Um, Cause there's clearly a whole story that happened for each of them to be in this situation. They're alone. They don't seem to have known each other before all this happened. They just kind of, met up and joined forces and have been keeping each other alive for this long, which does not seem to be very long at all. I mean, 28 days is really not that much time. No. Which is crazy, like considering how how much devastating devastation that the world is in right now. Yeah. I mean, I guess we don't know if it's the whole world, though. That's that's, that's true. That's yeah, the question, Britain, which I think, I say. which in my opinion is a question that should have remained unanswered. But that last scene is like, oh, wait, no, other people are OK. And I'm like, OK, cool. Didn't want that question to be answered. But great. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's just the different way that you and I approach movies. Sure, um, yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm curious. Have you seen the movie I Am Legend? I have not. No, I feel like you would hate I Am Legend because it is very much so a ripoff of this movie. Um, in lots of ways, um, I would argue it's a little bit better, but that's my own opinion. How can you say it's better if it's copying something else? I, you know, sure. we could have that debate all day long. Well, isn't but, the whole point of I Am Legend that Will Smith is the only one left? It's just him and maybe a dog versus the zombies? Well, he meets other people, so... Oh, he does? Yes, yes. And the reason I brought this up is because... Not to compare them because there's a lot of common themes between apocalypse movies just across the board. I mean, your zombie movies are going to generally be dealing with similar themes and tropes and ideas. Yeah, but even just like apocalypse movies in general. But um, but this scene with Selena and Mark made me think of um, this one sequence in I Am Legend where, spoiler alert, Will Smith's character meets other people. 
and they're kind of like what's going on what is this world and he is telling them like and there's this line that will smith delivers that is so well acted in my opinion but he looks at her and he goes every single person that you and i have ever known is dead (laughs) and he's like really trying to like get it into her head like everyone is dead there is no hope like everyone is dead you need to understand and this sequence with selena and mark and jim kind of reminded me of that because we have both of them on this side of trying to teach jim like this is the reality of the situation but selena is a lot more like harsh about it whereas mark is more gentle um but anyway, yeah, it just it made me think of that scene from I Am Legend because that's one of the most, you know, one of the more memorable scenes of I Am Legend because Will Smith's acting is just so good in that sequence. But yeah. 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 I mean, one of the things I love about this movie is the transformation of the characters. And obviously Jim as the central character has the most transformation where, he, you know, he he starts out as an innocent um you know he's a he's a young guy he's still living with his parents we don't know exactly how old but um you know might be a little bit of arrested development going on there but him being thrust into this unbelievably difficult situation and having to you know being a like you know a blast of wind could knock this guy over like he's he's not a physically intimidating person <laughs> and so having to first rely on the good graces of the people around him and then later as he does gain confidence and knowledge in this world using that then to protect the people around him is just a a transformation that I find really compelling um with Mark um Selena says later that Mark had ideas and plans and that Selena is different because she doesn't and I do find that dynamic really interesting in the sense of um you know jim sort of takes over the mark role after mark has been killed mark is the one who's thinking about the long term and thinking about the future and then jim kind of slides into that role but mark also you know because he's only there for such a short time but he does tell this really harrowing story about what happened to his own family um which is that they went to they went to some sort of port to try and see if they could buy or barter their way out of Britain while well, there was still some sort of organized evacuation going on. And this huge crowd had gathered and there were zombies in the crowd. There was a surge and he managed to find a high point to to protect himself. But he lost contact with all of his family except his father. And the way he describes looking at his father's face and basically not being able to tell if he was infected or not, like the the twisted, you know, look of whatever that was, rage, fear, horror, you know, like it's just that idea that it's so much better to never, to have your the people you love just snuffed out as opposed to having to witness that and having to live with that memory for the rest of your life is just a really evocative, horrifying thought to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Selena and Mark go with Jim to Jim's home. Um, it's undisturbed, so the zombies have not got it, but his parents are dead. And what we find out is that his parents... After knowing that he is in a coma and that the entire world is breaking down, they made the decision to and lie down in bed and end their own lives together. And they wrote a note for Jim 
And um, it's really devastating. You know, he's like this little boy who suddenly come home and found out that, you know, his home is gone, his parents are gone. And he like, there's a sequence where he's, as they're all kind of trying to get some rest, he's like going around the house with a candle and looking at all these memories and remembering his parents as they used to be. And, but of course, you know, he woke up from a coma 24 hours ago. He doesn't know the rules yet. And he brings on the zombies. And so there's a zombie attack. They break through the window. Mark and Selena manage to fight them off, but Mark gets cut. And Selena does not hesitate. She brutally just hacks Mark to bits. Um, I thought she was just going to cut his arm off, you know, because it looked like it, le- it looked like the first couple swings, the way that it was shot. She was just cutting his arm. And I was like, oh, she's going to cut the arm off to get rid of the infection, whatever. Because again, I forgot that Mark died. And I was like, oh no, she's straight up, like she's straight up just slashing him to pieces. Like, okay, that's great. Yeah, she's she's not joking around. We don't really get a sense of whether whether that would work. Um, but the infection spreads so quickly, I have to assume that she's uh, Yeah, just I mean, 10 by... seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did want to mention, uh, I did really like that sequence with um with Jim in the kitchen and he's having that memory and it's like it's almost like he's watching a home video but he's also participating in it at the same time I just thought that was a really interesting um really interesting idea and the way that it was shot and I guess interpreted um I just thought it was really well done I liked that a lot yeah I agree it's very sort of it's color it's still grainy but it's colored and lit in a very different way than the events of the rest of the movie so you can tell you're watching a a flashback yeah it's very well done um so mark jim and selena are now a team and they head out and there's a there's a crucial conversation between the two of them where jim asks selena how she knew that mark had actually been infected because basically there was blood absolutely everywhere like it's a miracle that Jim and Selena are not covered in glass shards and zombie blood. But she says she didn't know, but Mark knew, and that he, she could tell from his face. And she says, like, once someone gets infected, you have 10 seconds to kill them, and I'm not going to hesitate. I All I want to do is, you know, I'm not like Mark. I don't have plans for the future. All I want to do is stay alive. Um, they come across this apartment building that has these Christmas lights on, Um, which is very strange because, you know, not much electricity still working. So they go to investigate and they get into this tower block where um, zombies are chasing them up the stairs and Jim is like crashing because all he's had to eat for like 28 days is just a boatload of sugar. Um, But this guy in riot gear shows up and he lets him into this apartment and it turns out that it's Brendan Gleeson, who favorite actor of mine I'm always delighted to see him on screen um and he's Frank he's got this teenage daughter Hannah um his wife we're not sure what happened but it seems like she may have been killed by zombies but they welcomed him and Selena in and they um it's like a sort of a temporary safe place for them to all be for a little bit of time try and be like some semblance of of normalcy um any thoughts on the introduction of Hannah and Frank well, I just wanted to mention a little bit before that moment um, when Selena and Jim are kind of walking down the street after Mark has died. Selena, she's kind of going through this monologue, like you mentioned, where she's talking about, you know, I won't hesitate. You have 10 seconds, blah, blah, blah. 
And then I think somewhere in the midst of that, she says something like, um, what do you like? Are, I don't know if you're expecting like, uh, uh, like yeah, expecting us to find a cure for us to just fall in love and like none of that's going to happen. All we're doing is staying alive. Something like that. Yeah. So um, I just really liked that that was something that she said. I think it's super. Um, I don't know. I, I think for me as an audience member, I really appreciated a character saying that because I feel like whenever I go into an apocalyptic movie like this, I'm like, OK, they're going to try and find a cure. Someone's going to fall in love, blah, 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 blah. which they end up doing both of those things in this movie. But <laughs> well, they don't they don't find a cure, but they go looking for a cure. They do. Go so. Looking. So. So, yeah, I just thought it was I thought it was kind of interesting that they kind of instilled that in one of the characters within this story and then they end up doing it anyway. But I liked that she had that perspective at first of like, I'm just going to survive all of these other things I don't care about because they're not they don't exist. I'm not going to get my hopes up like I'm just surviving. Um, And so I thought that that was just an interesting concept to have a character straight up say that. Um, but yeah, as far as meeting, uh, Frank and Hannah, I, I'm thinking that you'll agree with me. If not, let's talk about it. Um, I think, I think Hannah is a terrible actress. Oh, she's awful. She absolutely awful. She I mean, ruins. I apologize to the actress who was a teenager at the time. I feel bad making fun of child and teenage actors, but yeah, she's, she's, I really mean, bad. I, I, Every single time she said anything, I was like, you have any sort of sense that I was in the world of this movie has immediately been removed because you sound like uh, it's her acting is just awful. So I wish that they'd found a better actor for her. I think that there are teenage there's lots of teenage actors that know how to act and do it well. Um, I don't know if it was a budget thing or if they had some sort of personal relationship with this person and that's why they brought them on the project. I don't know, but I think she brings down the movie a lot. It would be one thing if she was a minor character and granted she is more minor than Jim and Selena, but she's still a main character. (laughs) And, uh, so yeah, I don't like this actress at all. Um, so anyway, I think that's like my main takeaway from meeting them. I'm like, I just, oh my gosh, like this performance is just so bad. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal. I mean, it doesn't bring down the movie too much for me. It's, I do wish they had a, a better actress in that role. But I like, since I like everything that goes on around her and I like the function that she plays within the movie, I don't know, I can, I can overlook it, I think, a lot, <laughs> a lot more easily than you can. I think that Frank, too, as a character... I think that he shows this really cool and interesting balance of, you know, he's a father and because of that, he has to kind of, he's almost forced to have some sense of optimism for his life because he has a child that he wants them to have a future. And so I think in a lot of this movie, we kind of see him as this cheerful kind of guy, but then every once in a while we get these moments where he really shows that actually he's struggling with this too and he's scared and he is you know on the brink of hopelessness as well but he has to keep it together for his child and so I feel like we see that even just this introduction of him because he starts out as this guy who's like he's defending them he's fighting for them and then he tells his daughter let them in he's so kind and offering them food and then the next morning he's basically yelling at them like 
this is the only hope that we have. Like this radio broadcast might not be real. I don't care. We have to go. And um, so, yeah, I, I think he's a very, honestly, out of all of them, I think he's the most interesting character to me because he seems to have a lot more layers uh, than the other people that are around him. So, yeah, I, I think I think it's a good introduction to him. Yeah, you really wonder what he what would have happened to him if he didn't have this daughter to protect and to fight for and to keep living for? You know, so much of his plans and the way that he makes decisions is based around, I just have to keep this, my daughter alive. I have to protect her. I have to keep her safe. I have to keep her fed. I have to, um, you know, do everything that I can to ensure that she has a future. Um, And that's, I think, the thing that is able to motivate him and then later in the movie when it seems like and as we find out is in fact true (laughs) that the hope that he's been basing everything all of his decisions on is a false hope he just kind of falls apart a little bit very understandably um but yeah so they're all hanging out in the apartment um selena like she kind of clocks that like they are these Hannah and Frank they're desperate they need us more than we need them and again you know she's taking this very pragmatic view of the situation and there's this really nice little exchange where Jim is like you know he's kind of ribbing her about like oh yeah if if they slowed you down she'd leave them behind and she's like yes I would leave them behind if they slowed me down you're joking but but I'm not joking (laughs) yeah exactly like come on Um, but yeah there's this really nice little exchange where Jim is like listen I know you think that I don't get it, but I do get it. I just disagree, basically. Like, I I understand the situation we're in, and yet I choose to have hope. And he says, listen, I'd be dead without you, and so thank you. And Selena says, sure. And Jim's like, no, 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 what I mean is thank you. And Selena says, what I mean is sure. Yep. And it's just such a good encapsulation of kind of where their characters are at at this moment. Yeah, I like this dynamic of uh, Selena having this perspective that they need us more than we need them. And then obviously the tables get turned when Hannah the next day is like, you, we both need each other. Like you need us just as much as we need you. And that's why you guys are still here. That's why we're all going on this journey together. And anyone who's saying anything different is lying to themselves. And I like how that's kind of flipped. Cause I think Selena is someone who, in my opinion, she seems she seems so much so convinced in everything that she says that she is right and that no one can change her mind and Hannah proves her wrong or not proves her wrong but like changes her mind in that moment of like no we all need each other and so let's stop pretending that that's not the case yeah well Hannah points to points out I think very smartly that you know, what is Selena's plan otherwise is just to stay in the city. The cities are really the most dangerous place to be right now. There's a million places for things to be hiding out. Um, It would be much safer to move out of the city and to move into a more isolated area. Why not look at, why not move and, and go after this thing that Frank wants them to go after, which is, so basically they have discovered this radio broadcast that's playing on a loop and it claims that the answer to infection is somewhere northeast of Manchester. There's other survivors, there's soldiers who are armed, um, you know, safety is out there basically. Um, so Frank wants to go for it. Selena's very resistant, but she allows herself to be 
persuaded because it is, like you said, and like Hannah points out, you know, they all really need each other. These people can't, you're not going to survive very long if you're on your own. It is more helpful to be with other people. I had one of those radios, by the way. Oh, really? The little ones that you can wind up. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't remember why or when, but I definitely had one, or my parents, I guess, had one when I was little. Be very useful if you ever find yourself in a post-apocalyptic scenario. I was thinking, watching this movie, I was like, I mean, I'm not a doomsday prepper, but I also feel like there's some practical things that I should have in my home for, like, if something happens and, like, the power goes out in the entire city for a long period of time or whatever, I'm like, I should probably get some more practical radios and flashlights and things like that. That would probably be a smart thing to do. Yeah. I used to, do you ever do this? I, I will do this sometimes as an exercise. I used to do it more when I was younger, but I would just lie in bed sometimes. And when I couldn't sleep, I would think about, all right, if like all of a sudden the apocalypse happened and I had to get out of this house right now, what, and I could just grab a backpack and fill it with stuff. What would I fill it with? And then just you'd think through, about like, that to put yourself to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Wow. Lists. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, like what are the practical items, but how would you balance it against the sentimental items that you want to take with you? Um, you know, what are the clothes you'd want to bring? I do have a sword. I would take my sword with me. Sword could be helpful. Sword would definitely be helpful in any scenario. Is it a heavy sword? Uh, no, but it's better than a kitchen knife because I could sharpen it and All right. use it over and over. Well, you're on my post-apocalyptic team now. Oh, well, there you go. Great. I um, could last at least a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could last at least a day, I feel like. I'd last more than a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> you would last longer than me. I'm telling you right, uh, that right now. Maybe. I don't know. Let's test you're, the theory. <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely more athletic than me. All right. So speaking of um, lasting, surviving in a post-apocalyptic scenario. So turns out Frank is actually a cabbie. And he so he has this like cab that is still in working order and has gas and everything. So they can drive. They're trying to drive out of the city. Um, Frank decides to take them through this underground tunnel, which I'm a little confused about the writing in this scene because Jim is the only one who's like, this is obviously a really shitty idea. How is everyone else not on his side? How is Jim not Jim, the only one who's extremely sensible, because obviously this is a really terrible idea. You they don't need more go. adventure and excitement in their lives. They're, so. they're just they, thrill seekers. <laughs> I guess they say it's the most. You, actually, you know what it is? I'm just realizing this now because they say it's the most direct way out of the city. And that's why Frank chooses it. I think Frank chooses it because he has spent like collectively 10 years of his life being caught in traffic in this tunnel and now he has the opportunity to just drive over the cars and he's like I'm not passing that up I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it yep <laughs> and it works kind of <laughs> it kind of works yeah they they drive over the cars which I have no idea how that's supposed to work um, they do get a flat tire and so Hannah has to change it in record time great job Hannah um jim is like so snarky he's like oh world's worst place to get a flat huh it's like jim not helpful um but after this is one of my favorite scenes in this movie which is the grocery shopping scene which is a scene that i will just randomly think about because who doesn't want to go into a grocery store where there's no one there and money doesn't mean anything so you can take literally anything and everything you could ever want and it's just so delightful because it's just like in the midst, it's this little oasis of the characters being really playful with each other and having fun. 
in the midst of this really rotten situation where everything has been bleak and you know, Frank and Hannah are like playing around with the shopping carts and um, Frank is like instructing Jim on like, oh, no, no, don't choose that scotch. Choose this scotch. It's like very fatherly. Um, he like looks at the apples, which are like the only green thing that's left in the produce section. He's like, mm, irradiated. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> anyway, I love it so much. So, yeah, they all leave the store. Frank leaves his credit card behind, which is great. And um, yeah, I love that sequence. One of my friends shared this video meme the other day, and it was a video. I don't know who made this video, but it's amazing. I guess it wasn't a meme then. It was just a video that that they shared. But in the video is this guy. He goes, yeah, I don't like... I don't like to brag or I don't typically brag about the expensive trips that I take, but I just came back from the grocery store (laughs) and then it just replays again. Like, I don't like to brag. I don't normally brag about the expensive trips I take, but I just got back from the grocery store. Um, That is amazing. RIP. But yeah, so as far as this sequence goes, I just want to say this is where I start to get with the movie and I'm like, oh it starts to fall apart for me because there's just certain things about it that I'm like I see little bits and pieces of how this could be good but there's something that happens that takes it to cheese town for me and I can't get over it and so for this for this scene of them in the grocery store I like the idea of them kind of you know having this light carefree moment after this beginning of the movie and it's really tense and then it's nice to have a little bit of a reprieve you know before we go back into the depths of man is evil not zombies and or they're both evil whatever um but I like the idea of them having this moment that's carefree and I liked the humor of him kind of placing his card on the counter as they leave but my gosh this the score during this scene is is absolutely the most obnoxious Wait, what's wrong with the score? It's obnoxious. Oh my, have you listened to it? I was watching this scene. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hate this so much. Like this music is so annoying and so repetitive and so like, it just is silly. It sounds like it's a joke. I'm like, is this a a joke? Like I know this scene is supposed to be funny, but this is so obviously like on the nose ha 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 this scene's supposed to be funny and light and I was like I would have liked this scene otherwise but because the music plays throughout the whole thing and I hate it so much I was like I don't think I can watch this sequence again because the music is the worst wow um cannot say I couldn't stand it I was like I can't take this I cannot say that I had that reaction to the music, <laughs> but all right. <laughs> Man, it was like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get over it. it but anyway, it's okay. It, it, it's, it could be just a me thing. I don't know. But I'm like, I don't know who composed the music for this sequence, but good golly. It's a bit much. Frank leaving his credit card behind. I liked that, but the music was too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they stop at a gas station, and we have this really interesting scene where um, my interpretation of this is that Jim is basically kind of deciding that it's about time for him to take some sort of control over his own sort of role in this group, and he wants to kind of investigate and have some sort of adventure 
that he can call his own. So he decides to go into the, while they're waiting outside to, to fuel, um, Jim decides to go into this nearby fast food station. To get them hamburgers. To get the, as yes, he says cheeseburgers. Har- as if there's fresh yeah. cheeseburgers a month <laughs> I mean, later. That's, that's very clearly a joke. <laughs> Um, and Selena's like, you better stay close. And he's like, oh, it's like going on a vacation with your fucking aunt, <laughs> which is very funny. Um, but yeah, he goes in and I think very much knowing what he's going to find, which is a bunch of corpses, um, horrifyingly, including an infant, um, lying on the floor. I didn't um, need to see that. I'm sorry. I, I know that that exists. I don't need to see it. That's just my own personal opinion, but very train spotting, honestly. Um, so he goes in there, he kind of looks around, he gets his look on his face like he's doing something very intentionally, and he goes, hello? And then a zombie jumps out to attack him, and so he like knocks it down, but he sees before he, the zombie is just a child, it's just a little boy, and they, in between all the like the growling and the screaming from the zombie, they meld in this, I hate you! Did you hear, did you catch that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. So... Jim kills it, you know, he doesn't really have a choice. Um, and then he he walks outside and the others are like, what happened in there? And he says nothing. They all know something happened in there. So the group, they drive to um, the these ruins in the middle of the country where they're very uh, isolated apart from people. They feel kind of safe. They have a little picnic. Um, Jim and Selena have this conversation where Selena's like, you know, we're never going to experience an original, like, piece of art again. You know, that we're never going to read a book that's never been made before. We're never going to see a film that's never been made before, a p- piece of painting or anything like that. Um, which I think is, I mean, A, you know, probably not true if there was uh, our other survive- <laughs> survivors. Like, someone's going to rebuild and start doing art again. But Someone's out there writing right now because it's their only way to process what's going right, on. exactly. <laughs> There's going to be so much art about what happened. Um, but it is still a little kind of a disconcerting way of thinking. But Jim's like, yeah, no, 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 that's what you were thinking. I was not thinking about that at all. And Selena's like, yeah, I kind of realized that I was wrong because seeing... Frank and Hannon together shows that there actually is more to, than just staying alive. There is something to live for. Um, and Jim says, oh, that's what I was thinking. And she gives him a little kiss on the cheek. And I thought it was very cute. And Tatum is rolling her eyes. I hate it so much. Oh, I love it. I think they're so cute. It is the most shoehorned bullshit aspect of this movie. I hate it so much. <laughs> it makes no sense. It's so fast. It's, it's just, I, I hate it. I, I hate it. I, I love it. I I mean, my interpretation is these two characters are just really young people who are just barely figuring themselves out and are suddenly thrust into this ridiculous situation. And they process it in very different ways. But then as they grow to trust each other, they kind of come to an understanding. And, you know, of course, when you're in an intense situation, that often develops feelings that you may not develop in other contexts. I don't mind them developing feelings. I just feel like the way that the movie does it is just so fast I feel like it goes from I will kill anybody and I will kill you to oh wait I'm kissing you on the cheek to oh wait a minute let's make out and I'm like okay we're taking huge jumps from one place to the next and we're not really seeing what's happening in between so I feel like I mean granted 
is this movie a love story? No, it's not. So it's like, how much do we actually expect them to really, you know, dive into developing this relationship? If you can even call it a relationship in that sense. But it just felt very rushed and very sudden to me. And but that's just I'm yeah. very critical in terms of how movies approach romance. So I'm aware that like it doesn't what well, doesn't work for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't seem rushed or sudden to me, but um, that's fine. Um, that night. Uh, well, we find out that night that Selena qualified as a chemist. So I thought know. that was cool. That was very cool. I thought that was really um, cool. She has this whole store of Valium and other pills that she's been using to get to sleep. Um, Jim has this dream where he... Um, so Jim, he seemingly, he wakes up and he's all alone. Everyone else has gone and abandoned him. And he immediately like freaks out and starts melting down and he's running around and he's yelling and everything. But then we see that actually it's a nightmare um, and Frank, like Jim's kind of like stirring in his sleep and Frank comes over and like kind of comforts him and is like, hey, it's just a nightmare. And Jim goes, thanks, dad. And I sob because, <laughs> because I think it's so sweet. And this sort of like, you know, backstage theme of Jim kind of as this character who's kind of a a homebody, you know, again, still lived with his parents, like kind of looking for a parental figure and then ending up as the parental figure is a, just a an arc that I'm very invested in. And I think it's so sweet the way that Frank kind of immediately slides into the parent figure for these two young people that he's he's um, picked up. I just think the one thing I'm going to say is I think this is something I would love to have a conversation with you about a little bit more off mic at some point maybe we've already talked about this I don't know but I'm just very interested in like the certain moments and themes that make you cry and the ones that make me cry because you didn't cry at all in pursuit of happiness when I say I sob I'm being facetious I did not actually sob to be okay (laughs) okay but did you tear up though no no my heart melted a bit but um I didn't physically tear up. Okay, okay. I was like, I was like, you literally sobbed. Like, oh, no. that's, <laughs> no, no, that's no, so sorry. interesting. Like, I'm, that was a joke. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Because I was like, I would love to talk about like, why do things like that make you sob? And then I'm just kind of like, yeah. I started I'm, tracking some of the movies that do make me tear up with a tag on Letterbox, And I'm actually kind of curious what was the most recent one to do it. I mean, um, I know we both sobbed when we watched Coco, but I feel like aside from that, I don't really know other crying movies that we have in common but anyway that could be a tangent you just made me think of that but I know you weren't actually sobbing now so okay gotcha (laughs) no metaphorically sobbing but gotcha not not actually sobbing um okay so the next day um they keep driving they arrive at Manchester and there's this really amazing shot of them walking riding down this long completely empty highway and then the the camera pans up and the entire city is on fire which I'm assuming is kind of like um they achieved with CGI or something like that but it looks really impressive I think sorry I'm just like no they actually burned an entire city (laughs) to the ground well as opposed to like a matte painting or something (laughs) like we built an entire (laughs) fake city so we could burn it to the ground (laughs) now we're wondering why we're running out of money (laughs) (laughs) indeed I don't understand (laughs) help me budget this film um so they arrive at the the 
the special like this blockade where the radio voice was directing them but there's no one there like there's a bunch of military trucks and everything but there's just a couple dead bodies and otherwise it's empty and frank is like freaking out he's like no no no, they've got to be here and he's like walking around and trying to look and everyone else is like oh i don't know about this what do we do now um but tragically frank happens to look up at just the wrong moment and there's this corpse overhead and a little drop of blood drops down and gets in his eye and he turns into a zombie um and he's like He's like trying to fight it off and also and telling Hannah that he loves her, but also like pushing her away. And it's like pushing her away out of love, but also anger and like, oh, gosh, his the way he like shakes his head and starts like jolting and everything. It's it's heartbreaking. Um, Frank's uh, Frank turns into a zombie and then the soldiers finally swoop in and they shoot him dead, which like. I'm always wondering, did they only just arrive or were they just hiding out of sight? I made a note of that time? as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, hmm, quite the coincidence that they wait yeah. for him to get bit. And they've been here for quite a while at this point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we get to know what their motives are later on, maybe we're like, maybe they were thinking, Jim's way too tiny. He doesn't pose a threat to us. So <laughs> yeah, we'll exactly. let him live. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try and let the uh, the the bigger guy knock himself uh, get himself killed before we intervene right yeah yeah maybe the first sign that something is off so the soldiers all take the the remaining survivors so jim selena and hannah back to their stronghold which is this old manor house that's been fortified and we meet christopher eccleston who plays major west um and who also who also stars in another fantastic post-apocalyptic story which is the television show the leftovers if no one's seen it Highly recommend. It's a very different type of apocalypse, but <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Um, so well, I was about to say like at first everything seems fine and then it goes downhill, but actually no. From the beginning, everything is super off. Like, yeah, Jim, he's like taking a shower and he sees the soldiers like just playing with their taxi and like poking, like brutally poking fun at one of the other soldiers. Um. It's just everything's really tense and you can tell that nothing is good and you're just kind of waiting to see what is going to, you know, when the other shoe is going to drop. Like, I think Jim and Selena are like are desperately hoping that this will be fine, but it's very clearly not going to be fine. Um, Let's see. So we discover like West is like showing Jim around the place and he shows him that they, one of their own, like one of the soldiers got infected and they managed to chain him up in the backyard, which like is just such an incredibly cruel and like unbelievably horrifying thing. Like this person that you've been serving alongside who is presumably your friend, you've chained him up. Like he's like this wild animal and you're just performing basically experiments on him, like waiting to see how long it takes for him to die. And Jim is like clearly really disturbed and horrified. And like West is just like, oh, yeah, you know, he's just we're just waiting for him to die. And da-da, that's it. Let me show you the kitchen. It's like really creepy. I, I'm assuming that given what I know about like film productions, having worked on them, there probably was an intentional reason why they chose who they chose to be that person chained Mm -hmm. up back there. 
but I was like the same thing for me coming from just who I am as a person it really frustrates me that they chose a black person to be the one who's chained up. Well, I think it's a 100% intentional choice on the part of the director and I the know. casting. I know. It like, still bothers me, though. Like, I'm not saying it... It should. I'm not saying it bothers me that they did it necessarily. It just bothers me to see, mm-hmm. so, like, a person of color, particularly a black person, chained up like that. And I think, like, this movie is predominantly white people. It just mm-hmm. is. And the fact that, like, one of the few people of color in this movie is someone who's chained and treated like an animal and having experiments performed on him, it just, it really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, the way that the soldiers interact with with Mailer, the, the soldier that was infected, and then also with Selena, like, there is, there's a lot of misogyny. Obviously, there's so much misogyny in the way that they treat the women, but there's also this tinge of like racialized violence as well um like it's very much sort of this underlying threat and this underlying um element in all of those scenes yeah I think it's it's interesting too though because it 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 has this dynamic of yes it's horrible to have a person who used to be you know, as you said, a friend, someone you worked alongside to have them chained up in the back like this. But at the same time, they are going to learn something important in terms of how long does it take for these things to to starve to death, assuming that's even possible, you know? And I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my reading of the movie, especially in that last sequence, which I don't know if it existed in the original ending that, you know, Danny Boyle intended, but I think we do see the zombies at the end, like very weak and sort of falling over in the sense that maybe they do actually starve to death at some point. And there is hope that this could end. And so I think that that introduces, I don't know, just it, it, it increases the complexity of having this person. It's like, yes, this is really, really, I don't know, sadistic and like sick that you are chaining someone, but at the same time, you are going to kind of get value, valuable information out of what you're doing. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just an interesting, an interesting dynamic. Yeah. I don't know. I, you, I feel like you could have gotten that information in less sadistic ways. <laughs> like that, that thought that eventually the zombies are going to starve to death is not a bad one, but I don't think you need to chain up this man who was supposedly under your authority or, you know, your friend in this incredibly dehumanizing way in order to gain that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying there is information that they are going to learn from this. It's not just like inherently destructive. Like there is logic mm-hmm. behind why they're doing what they're doing. Well, there's like, there's a twisted logic to what West is doing in general too like it's a horrible logic and it's bad and he should not do it but um so what we learn is that um jim like west tells jim my men like after a few weeks of living out here and thinking that we're basically the only people left on earth my men started to despair because they're thinking there's no future and so he has this chilling line he says i promise them women so basically, they're luring sur- survivors to them so that they can 
kill off or turn any men that they find and then have the women there to be their sex slaves slash like repopulate the earth and it is so horrifying and disgusting and um like there is you know like i said there's this there's a twisted logic to it in the sense that like yeah we do need to be thinking about the future but this is the the horrifying inverse version you know the horrified upside down version of looking toward the future which is at any cost we need to be enslaving people to our whims and um treating people horribly in order to achieve some sort of twisted version of the future they should just go the seven brides for seven brothers route you know (laughs) go into town uh (laughs) kidnap a few women bring them back and that movie's a horror movie in my opinion but (laughs) i love that movie but i don't disagree it's a horror movie like i'm sorry people can love the movie and i love that people love the movie but i'm like please acknowledge this is a horror film (laughs) um there is a, this a movie is a prequel to Seven Brides for Seven. <laughs> Very much prequel, considering it's set like two hundred years after Seven Brides for Seven. Um, there's a bit of dissension in the ranks because there's this Sergeant Farrell who's like his whole philosophy is basically. Um, mankind is just a blip in the grand scheme of like you know the earth being billions and billions of years old so if humanity gets wiped out then that's in the grand scheme of things that's just kind of a return to normalcy um let nature do what it's gonna do exactly and then wes's response to that is in his own experience people have always been killing people so right now we've got people killing people so we're basically in a state of normality right now and um obviously that does not which i think is an interesting point yeah yeah, I mean, well, it is very like, you know, and this is kind of the the classic horror, the classic post-apocalyptic, like what the appeal of that sort of genre is, is like all of our sort of societal, civilizational, the the guardrails we've put up to keep ourselves in line, all of those things are stripped away. We're now seeing things as they truly are. We're seeing the way that you know, all all the way, the bad ways that we treat each other are suddenly amplified because there's no rules or restrictions. And so it is this idea of an unveiling, you know, of who humanity really is. And in this case, humanity is um, a bunch of bored guys who just want to like blow up other people and rape women. And um, it's, it's, it's very well done because you're just you know, horrified and about to throw up. So, yeah, any any thoughts before we get to, like, Jim being taken out for execution and all the, the action sequence that ensues? No, I mean, I feel like for the last part of this, I'm probably going to be quiet a lot because I think the last 30 minutes of this movie are incredibly weak. I, I, I think that they're predictable. I think... I don't know. I just I've seen I've seen so many movies in this apocalyptic genre. And even what you're saying about this whole scenario being horrifying. It's not it's not that it's not horrifying, but it doesn't hit me as horrifying because I've seen this so many times in so many other apocalyptic contexts of movies (laughs) and TV shows that like the whole rest of this, none of it feels original to me. So 
yeah I, I i i will let you take it from here because i don't like the ending to this movie at all <laughs> All right. Well, everyone who agrees with Tatum, can... no, which is no one, I fully acknowledge no, actually, that no one agrees with me. But that there actually are. I did see a lot of critical reviews who have that. They're not as strident as you. I mean, no one is on anything. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no. But I, 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 there are a lot of people who would agree that this movie is really good for two thirds, and then the third, last third is weak, or you know, the first third is really good, second third's okay, last third's weak. You know, that sort of thing. Like there's a, there's a lot of people out there who will agree that the third part is the the weakest part of this movie yeah like I don't think it's bad I just think that for me there's just nothing it doesn't have anything interesting to say because I've seen it before so it's not like oh this is this is shot poorly or because I think some of it does look really great but it's it's not like oh it's shot poorly or the acting is bad except for Hannah who really gets a lot of lines in this last section. Right. I'm well, like, I mean, we can just yeah. and she's also drugged, which makes it even worse. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like it's not that it's bad or that it's made poorly necessarily. It's just that for me, I'm just like the story just falls apart. It just becomes predictable and unoriginal for me. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, feel free to interject if you do. Have- I will say. Yes. The one thing I did like about this final sequence, mm-hmm. I did really like that moment, which I'm trying to remember if I've seen it in another. I think they did this in The Last of Us, actually, which is a show that came out, obviously, like decades after after this movie. Um, but the the mirror thing of like someone hiding behind a mirror and the zombie kind of looking at themselves. And that's kind of the way that you hide. I do like that. Um, I do like that moment in this sequence. Yeah, that was very cool. Although I was like, man, Hannah, her her arm strength must be ridiculous. No, I know, right? <laughs> I couldn't do that. <laughs> um, She's holding it really still, too. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> very impressive. Um, but yeah, to sum up kind of where we were. So um, the soldier's evil plans are revealed. Jim is taken, t- Jim and Sergeant Farrell, who's kind of like decided to rebel against major west they're both taken out to the woods to be executed um but jim manages to get away sergeant farrell kind of like there's a little skirmish over whether he's going to get shot or stabbed and then in that um moment he manages to hide among the corpses and then like make it back over the wall um i did like that him hiding in the corpses i thought that was really mm -hmm. smart yeah, that was really good. I don't oh, know actually, how he climbed over that wall. Seems very tall with like barbed wire on top bar, of it. Literal barbed wire on top. Yeah, he should be a lot more comfortable. He lost a shirt, but aside from that, he seems aside to be that. okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I I skipped over this one moment actually before all of that goes down. But um, I did want to mention um, while West is kind of revealing his evil plan to Jim, before he does that, he like he offers Jim a drink and he asks him who he's killed. And Jim admits that he killed a little boy. And it's this really interesting like moment of manipulation of, you know, get you to admit your darkest secrets so that you're in a vulnerable place when I reveal what I actually want you to do. Um, but I just I thought that moment was really interesting because it is this moment of like, well, am I actually in such a different place than these people who are, you know, glee- so gleefully blowing up corpses right and left and are actually not corpses. These these zombies are living people, like lest we forget, you know, we do need to kill them in order to keep ourselves alive. But 
they're so callous and so like excited about the idea of like blowing up the zombies it's it's very disturbing um but yeah and i i think killian murphy is just you know he's he's still a very young actor here it's still a bit rough in parts but i think he's very good here. how old is he here he's like um mid-20s i think oh wow okay yeah so okay yeah so jim taken out outside to be shot but he manages to escape um and then there's just like several things happening basically all hell is breaking loose everywhere because um jim sets loose mailer the the soldier that had been trained up chained up in the the backyard um mailer then goes and like attacks some of the soldiers who are keeping selena and hannah hostage and there's a great sequence where hannah's like drugged out because selena gave him some valium and she's like i think they're all dead and you're gonna die too and the soldier's like stop it <laughs> like getting so freaked out which is great um the um yeah so then mailer breaks in selena and hannah are like running around trying to escape um the soldiers are like basically getting picked off one by one and getting turned and then picking off each other in turn um hannah and selena get separated so selena's like taken by i think his name is mitch or mitchell he's like this particularly gross soldier um into this room and then hannah is like kind of wandering around through the manor like la di da because she's very high um she finds this photo of her family which is what she'd been looking for and then a zombie comes in she manages to hide behind a mirror and and stay safe where is henry this whole time oh major west yeah Oh, yeah. So um, when Jim first breaks at, breaks loose, what he does is he goes to the barricade and he sets off the alarm so that he lures out Major West and like another soldier or two to come and get him. And then at the barricade, he manages to murder the, the other soldier and he disables the truck so that West then has to walk back. So there's a little while where like Jim is back at the manor and then Major West shows up. How does Jim all of a sudden know how to do all of these things? I have no like, idea. It's just like, okay, that's convenient. Cool. Didn't know you could do that. It's his righteous you're rage a very, that is fueling you're, him. For a bike courier, you really have a lot of interesting skills. <laughs> the The creepiest part is when he like he murders the uh, the other soldier, but then he like sets him up in the truck as if he's driving the truck. Like it's very serial killer style. It's like whoa. <laughs> I'm very glad that Jim's on the side of good because what could happen if he was not? Um. So yeah, Jim has a gun now. He like runs back to the manor. He's like looking around. A gun with the... a knife on the front of it. Oh yeah, the bayonet. He like fully stabs Jones, who's the cook, like right in the, the chest. Um uh everyone's kind of running around. Um the um there's just all these little moments where like the soldiers are getting attacked and are like pleading for their mothers and um West arrives and like he finds Jones who's been stabbed and is bleeding out and he like he holds his hand while he dies and is like shh and it's you know, a little, little like moment of complexity where it's like he, there is this genuine care he has for his men in the midst of all the psychopath, <laughs> psychopathic, you know, um, dispassion. Can I just say um, I find it mm -hmm. unrealistic that all of these men have been murdered and turned into zombies. I don't know how many it would be at this point. Seven, eight. I don't know. 
But Jim is running around screaming, Selena, Hannah, for like a very long time. Uh And the zombies do not find him. I'm like, I don't believe that for a second. (laughs) Well, he does it briefly. And then he kind of like, he like heads outside and sort of makes it over the roof and like drops and then he's in an attic that that they're like oh my gosh is he above us and then he drops down like spider-man i'm like okay yeah it's very like all of a sudden he's the the horror movie monster who's stalking the the bad guys we have Um, that like i and this comes like quite a bit before this but when it starts raining we have that like sin city shot of jim standing in the rain and it's like whoa the raindrops look like they're white snow and it's black and like okay now we're in sin city cool got it <laughs> i mean we knew that already but um <clears throat> um so Jim makes it into the room where Selena's being held and he just absolutely obliterates this soldier. He like drops down in back of him, like fully beats his head against the wall, puts out his eyes with his fingers, which is like, it's a pretty great, like whatever that prosthetic that they use, it, it looks very convincing. Um, the whole music, by the way, during this house sequence, I think it's called In the House in a Heartbeat. Um, I love it. It's so good. I love the music in this movie so much. Um, Jim is like, he's, you know, he's absolutely covered in blood and he's in shadow. And Selena, like, fully thinks that he's turned infected, which is very reasonable to think. Um, But Jim, like, heads toward her and she, like, almost swings and then she doesn't. And then he's like, that was longer than a heartbeat. And, oh, he's fine. He's not And now they're making out. And then they're making out. And then Hannah breaks a vase over his head and she's like, I thought he was biting you. Can I just say (laughs) I love that considering the fact that this home is full of zombies and they have yet to find Hannah, she could very well be being raped right now for all that they know. And they make out for like 30 seconds. I'm like, guys, (laughs) well, come on. There are bigger priorities here. Like, come on. They're relieved to see each other. Hannah's in danger. What are you doing? Hannah's fine. (laughs) You don't know that. She could be eaten by zombies right now. And you guys are like, no, give us like a solid like 30 seconds to a minute to just make out with each other. Oh my gosh, it's not 30 seconds. It's a long time. It probably is 30 (laughs) seconds. But anyway, like I said, um, they're like making out and then Hannah breaks a vase over his head and she's like, I thought he was biting you. And Jim's like, I was kissing her. Wait, are you stoned? Are you high? <laughs> so funny. Um, He's very good at identifying stoned people. He clocks it within like three seconds. I'm like, dude, yeah. <laughs> how many stoned people have you been around? Um, so they, they all head out, but West is waiting in their car and he shoots Jim in the stomach, like basically out of revenge for you know you messed up my uh, military fortification hannah like does not hesitate she gets behind the wheel and she backs the the taxi with west in the back up to the house the zombies like pull him out the back window and murder him and then she's like all right guys let's go (laughs) which like stoned hannah is way more useful to the group than um than regular hannah we have they like drive through the gate and this is like the one thing in this movie apart from the acting of hannah that is truly i think terrible which is this really goofy freeze frame as they go through the gate it's so bad i just i don't know why it's there it's very bad it looks bad um but yeah, then we cut to 28 days later and all of a sudden the um the cinematography is very different. It's a lot brighter. Um 
I think it's a similar camera, but it does look a bit clearer. We have come full circle. Jim is waking up once again in um, naked in a bed, but this time it is with like in a place where he's surrounded by the people he loves. So Hannah's there, Selena's there, and they've been working on creating this giant, um, like stitching together these blankets basically, so they can form a signal to any plat- uh, overhead planes. And something I hadn't mentioned earlier is that when Jim is like, when he'd escaped from the soldiers and he's lying on the ground, he sees a plane overhead. And that kind of gives him the motivation to get up and keep going and go rescue Hannah and Selena. It's because it is this indication that there is something going on outside of Britain, that there are, you know, communities of people out there who have not been infected. So they're up in the, like... um, in the middle of the countryside just waiting to be rescued and there's this plane that's flying overhead i think i saw somewhere that the plane that they is supposed to be like from norway or finland or something like that. it's like that. a fighter jet yeah it's like a fighter or jet or something um, like that yeah yeah like looking for survivors and then once they find them they'll call in a helicopter but yeah so the the plane blesses them the the message they write is hello which is you know kind of has thematic resonance throughout the movie because that's the the phrase that jim always uses but um yeah the movie ends on a hopeful note which i really like although i can see (laughs) tatum does not um but like i said this movie i don't know the the sort of mix of optimism and pessimism really works for me. I am fundamentally an optimistic person when it comes to movies, but um, I do also like some darkness. So I don't know. It works for me. I understand it may not work for others. Yeah, does not work for me at all. He should have died. <laughs> should have died. No, seriously. I think you said in the mm-hmm. in your kind of research or whatever, like the original ending was him dying and then Selena and Hannah going off and figuring things out that's how it should have ended and also I'm not anti happy endings I mean with this movie I kind of am I don't think it should have a happy ending but the way that they do it is so extreme it's like the colors are bright and everything is green and they're like giddy with joy and just like jumping up and down like oh we're so happy and I'm like this is a bit much like y'all could just and also it's got like this weird nod to the audience of like, hey, remember how we said hello a lot? Huh? Huh? And I'm like, okay, like a funny joke, I guess. But like, what is the tone of this? Like this whole movie is one tone and then we're ending it on a completely different tone. It's it's not different that different from the tone of the rest of the movie because you have sequences like the grocery store sequence or the the picnic sequence where there are these moments of of joy and levity it's just that they're they're brief and now we're finally coming to a part where all the the darkness and um all the bleakness has you know it it happened and it was horrible and now it's they're coming to a point of you know hope for a better future so I don't think it's out of necessarily out of tone with the rest of the movie. I think the way that it looks visually makes it feel more out of tone because like even in the grocery store and things like that, it was it still had that grainy, grungy, dark sort of feel, whereas this is a lot more clear, smooth, bright greens. The sun is shining. It's like, we're are we in heaven? <laughs> like, OK. <laughs> Well, they've had a chance to breathe. They've had a chance to kind of get away and reform and regroup. I think they're in a 
better place emotionally than they were during the rest of the the movie. So it makes sense that it would be filmed a little bit differently. I I disagree, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's very extreme the way that it's shot in my opinion. It's like, "We're happy now." And I'm like, "Okay, thanks. In case you didn't know, you're really letting us know." All right, so this movie was, uh, it was, like I said, it was an unexpected box office hit, um, particularly popular in the U.S., which wasn't expected since this is a, like a British, a small British movie, but it five cost about five million pounds to make, and the worldwide um, take was about 85, almost 86 million dollars. Um, it wasn't nominated for any Oscars, although it did win some awards, including Best Horror Film at the Saturn Awards. Um, in terms of critical response, so Metacritic currently has it at 73, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 87%, um, and then I pulled two um, reviews, neither of these are from like major publications, but the first one I think just sums up um, some things about what I like about it, and then... Is that a website? What? Bloody Disgusting? Yeah, it's like a... Um, Bloody Disgusting is like a, a film blog that specializes in horror, mm. um, I believe, so okay, what they gotcha. said... This is like a, it's from some article that's like, you know, the best, the 20 best horror films of the the 21st century or something like that. But what they said about it is zombie movie, political allegory, humanist drama, 28 days later is all of these things and more. A genuine work of art by a director at the top of his game. What's so amazing about the film is the way it so expertly balances scenes of white knuckled hell for leather horror with moments of intimate beauty. So I like that. Um, and then there's this letterbox Drew that I found like a year or so ago. And I something about the way that he phrases it, I just can't stop thinking about because, you know, when I first saw this, I was a little thrown off by that choice to have that like really ugly looking videotapey cinematography. I'm like, why? I feel like I can't see anything. Like, why did they do this? But I really love the way he phrases it here. So this is um, a writer named Branson Reese in um, his letterbox review. He says, I remembered the sequence with Killian Murphy walking around in abandoned London to Godspeed You Black Emperor being really cool, and on rewatch, I think cool was probably underselling it. It feels like a miracle. Knowing that they couldn't afford to close down London and had to just shoot early in the morning before people were out only makes it more tense. Every shot feels impossible. They did that and only caught this on home movie-ass camera? I'll take all sorts of boring third-act army stuff, and maybe they should have done this as a silent film dialogue in the world if you put that London sequence in your movie. I don't think any other horror movie I'm aware of captured the specific visual dread and agony of 9-11 like Boyle did. Something is incredibly wrong, and we didn't have time to film it better. Can I just say that as someone who has worked many times as a set dresser, (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. It's really stressful to think about having to dress an entire city in the morning and shoot it and then reset it, like yeah. do all in of like that 20 minutes. in a few hours. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much, much respect to the crew that worked on that scene. wonder how many people they had to hire for that day to make sure they could get it done on time. Mm. Um, yeah. So in terms of um wrapping up final thoughts on this movie i despite tatum's thoughts i continue to love this movie um i'm glad you do i i wasn't trying to sway you (laughs) i don't want to i don't want to like i don't want to shit on a movie that you like if you like it that's awesome i'm so glad that you like it (laughs) yeah i just i really love the the relationships in this movie i think it does such a good job of bringing out sort of a 
very darkly pessimistic and honestly realistic view of the world and what humanity is capable of, but also balancing it with a this depiction of humanity at its best and about, you know, how we are, you know, we need relationships, we need each other. And in situations like this, those are the things that are going to keep us going. Those are the things that are going to keep us safe and sane. And um, this idea of safety, but also just sanity and growth being found through coming to care for other people and to protect them, um, I think is just very beautiful. And then also, I, I think there are just a lot of things that this movie says about, um, you know, about toxic masculinity, about the violence of the world, about... Um, like the ways that we, you know, the way that rage operates in our culture and kind of commenting on um, the hatred and, and polarization and, um, you know, the, the many tensions that are existing, um, this feeling of loneliness and disenfranchisement, like a lot of things that we didn't really have time to get to. But I think this movie has a lot of things to, to say about it. And it's just, I think, very well made. It's very... Um, engaging to me I think it's very well paced and um yeah there's there's a reason that it was so influential for the time and has kind of persisted as a a classic of the genre so yeah is there anything I know I know there are many things that you did not like about this movie is there anything like positive on this rewatch that you will take away well first of all I just want to say I'm sorry that we weren't able to touch on those other things that you said you wanted to discuss um maybe we can do like a bonus episode or something for our patreon supporters that we don't have because yeah, sure. we don't do patreon <laughs> yeah um but yeah i mean if you want to talk about that off mic at any point let me know i'm sorry we didn't get to talk about those things um yeah i mean I, i'm not gonna lie this movie's not for me um but i do i do wish that not wish necessarily, but I do acknowledge that if I had seen this movie in the time that it came out without having seen the dozens and dozens of apocalyptic post-apocalyptic material that has come out in the decades since, (laughs) I would appreciate this movie a lot more. Um, But that being said, I do still really like that opening sequence with with, um, the monkeys. I think it's just really really well done and, and just so good at establishing the stakes right off the bat and building this tension. And um, yeah, I think that the op- this movie opens very strong. It doesn't carry through till the end, but it, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I like that first, that first opening scene a lot. So yeah. <clears throat> All right. Tatum, do you want to tell the lovely listeners what we're going to be covering in the next episode? Yeah. So, uh, this week, Geneva chose a movie that she loved that I'm not necessarily a fan of. This might happen again next week. I, hope. <laughs> I mean, that happened last week as well. Uh, true. <laughs> we forget. Um, but I don't think, was it that you didn't like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or was it just it that it, it was too much? It made me physically ill. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was like you didn't like Texas Chainsaw. It's not that I thought it was a bad movie. It's that I thought the movie should not exist. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um... But anyway, so yeah, next week we are talking about uh, one of my favorite sports movies of all time because it happens to uh, be centered around the sport that I played through college, which is ice hockey. So we will be watching Miracle or talking about the movie Miracle next week from 2004. 
It's a very inspiring film about uh, the American men's hockey team uh, playing against Russia for the championship of the world. Not really of the world, but <laughs> but yeah, playing for the championship and that happening during a time where there were a lot of political things at stake. And um, yeah, it's a very inspiring movie and it's one of my favorite sports films. So if Geneva doesn't like this movie, then I'm going to take a break <laughs> from sports movies for a while because uh, it might just be actually, time to take a break. <laughs> I, I will preview one thing about our episode next week is that Tatum, I actually have seen this movie before and I remember basically nothing about it, okay. but I don't remember disliking it. Okay. I don't know what to do with that. I think, I think, I think that's a good, a good clean palette yeah, to know. start with. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you'll connect with it, but who knows? So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but we'll either see. way, I want to talk about it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always stuff to talk about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this, guys, and happy spooky season. Lest we we didn't mention this at the uh, the top of the episode, but of course this is dropping on Halloween. Oh, so, is it? Uh, it is. Yeah. Oh, I didn't so, even know that. <laughs> happy enjoy Halloween. Enjoy your trick or treating. Stay safe. Um, try not to run into any zombies. Yeah. Or if you do, just have a baseball bat on you and you'll be fine. Yeah. Or a machete. <laughs> or or a bayonet. <laughs> that part where he oversleeps and she's like, come on, babe, Ruth. Very cute. Um, but also, like, I would go for the machete. I don't know how much a baseball bat is going to do. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com our theme song is composed by joel rushton and our podcast graphic was designed by kara shin if you like this show and want to hear more please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform we're excited to have you on this journey with us until next time Ooh.